0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. Thank you for joining me in this podcast series where I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine, and bringing insights, ideas, and advice which I hope will be applicable for your medical practice. In the first part of this series on genetic screening for cancer, we focused on the science of proto-oncogenes gaining function to become oncogenes, and tumour suppressor genes and mismatch repair genes losing function. In this episode, we'll focus on cancer syndromes related to breast and ovarian cancer and colorectal cancer, in particular the Lynch syndrome. We should recall that inherited or so-called germline mutations of proto-oncogenes, tumour suppressor genes or mismatch repair genes account for a minority of breast and ovarian cancer as well as colorectal cancer syndromes, perhaps just 5 to 10% of cases. Acquired or somatic mutations influenced by multiple factors including environmental exposure and contact with cigarettes, alcohol, and other toxins account for the vast majority of malignancies. But when a cancer syndrome or pedigree is exposed, detailed testing not only informs us about appropriate surveillance programs for those affected, but also helps prevent the subsequent morbidity associated with neoplastic development through appropriate clinical intervention. Discussions around mutations of the tumour suppressor breast cancer, cancer genes, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 on chromosome 17, gained significant public uh, interest after Angelina Jolly revealed in 2013 that, like her mother who died at the age of 56 from ovarian cancer, she carried the BRCA1 gene and had undergone prophylactic bilateral mastectomy and then subsequent salpingo-oophorectomy. Now, whilst these genes are normally engaged in maintaining healthy cell function and DNA repair, mutations of these genes are inherited by 1 in 400 women and men, a little higher in some populations such as the Ashkenazi Jews, where the incidence is 1 in 40. They account for 5 to 10% of breast cancer and 15% of ovarian cancers. Normally, about 1 in 8 women will develop breast cancer in their life, and the average lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer is between 1 in 50 to 1 in 100. Carrying the BRCA gene increases the risk significantly so that BRCA1 mutations imply a 60% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer and a 40% lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer. For BRCA2, the risks are slightly lower, 50% for breast cancer and 20% for ovarian cancer. And there's a higher likelihood of triple negative breast cancer with BRCA genes. About 15 to 20% have triple negative development. Men with BRCA2 but not BRCA1 have an 80 times increased risk of developing breast cancer, which is about an 8% lifetime risk, and also are seven times more likely to develop prostate cancer. Now, your patients are more likely to have a genetic mutation linked to breast cancer genes if they have blood relatives who had breast cancer on either mother or father's side of the family, diagnosed before the age of 50, or if there's both breast and ovarian cancer on the same side of the family in an individual. If there's a relative with triple negative breast cancer, or if there's a woman in your family who has bilateral breast cancer, or a man in the family who had breast cancer. These are the sort of circumstances in which family cancer referral should certainly be considered and are attention alerted. On the subject to colorectal cancer, in 2020, about 15 and a half thousand new cases of bowel cancer in Australia were diagnosed. And whilst the majority of these were sporadic, 5% related to family cancer syndromes. The most common of which is the Lynch syndrome, named after Henry Lynch, who described a family pedigree in 1966-1967 based on Warthin's original description of a family related to his seamstress 40 years earlier. Lynch syndrome is accounted for by five mutations, the MLH1 and MSH2 being the most prevalent, MSH6, PMS2 and EPCAM, accounting for the others on chromosome 2, 3, 5 and 7. These are inherited faults or mutations in mismatch repair genes which lead to DNA microsatellite instability. And it's estimated that 1 in 280 people, or 80,000 Australians, have Lynch syndrome, and that probably only 5% know they have. The, mutation, the mutations account for up to 12 cancers, including colorectal cancer, which the lifetime risk is 20 to 80%, and these are particularly right-sided cancers. Endometrial cancer, in which the lifetime risk is 15 to 60%, accounting for 2 to 3% of all endometrial cancers, but as well as gastric cancers, bile duct cancers, urinary tract cancers, pancreatic cancers, skin and cerebral cancers. Significantly, a third of colorectal cancers diagnosed with Lynch are before the age of 50, a third are between 50 and 65 years of age, and a third are over the age of 60. Variations of this include the Turcot syndrome, which is Lynch plus brain tumours, and the muir syndrome, which is Lynch plus skin cancers. It's also important to note the role of aspirin in helping to reduce neoplastic development. Now, there are certain criteria that have been highlighted that help us determine a family pedigree. These are known as the Amsterdam criteria, in which three or more relatives with colorectal cancer, endometrial cancer, small bowel cancer, ureteric or renal pelvic cancer, one of which is a first-degree relative of the others, plus colorectal cancer involving at least two generations, plus one or more colictal cancers diagnosed in a patient younger than 50 years, and this criteria has been revised by the so-called Bethesda guidelines. This set of criteria should should make us mindful of the pedigrees to consider in our clinical practice when reviewing patients and when we're thinking about referring people off to the family cancer clinics for analysis. Now, to unpack this very complex subject, please welcome to the conversation, Dr Lucy Gates.
1: Dr Lucy Gately, thank you very much for joining me again on Everyday Medicine. And We had a very interesting conversation last week about uh, what the clinic does in terms of um, family cancer screening. Uh, I think it was very, very helpful. And I think it's also very helpful to know that patients can be referred in to you and and a a doctor like yourself or part of your team and and Lynn, who's in the counselling side of it, will at least discuss the risks, uh, the appropriateness of various testing and, and really guide that patient through their... Uh, their clinical problem and and give good feedback to the GP. I I understand that the two big syndromes that we really are looking at for referral to you reflect the breast ovarian cancer syndrome, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, and then on the other side, the Lynch syndrome genes, which uh, are even more common, I understand, in terms of instance than the the BRCA genes. Can you tell us a little bit about the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, what the implication is? And, you know, the, the whole, that sort of syndrome, what should we know about that?
2: So BRCA1 and 2 are the two main genes that are associated with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. They're certainly not the only genes that we know about, but they're the most highly penetrant ones. The other genes we know about are moderately penetrant. And when I say penetrant, that refers for the ability for the genetic change to lead to disease. So, for example, in the um, BRCA1 and 2, they have an increased risk of developing ovarian cancer and breast cancer. So for breast cancer, that risk is around the 60 to 70% mark.
1: Life, lifetime risk. Mm.
2: Lifetime risk, and yeah. with lifetime is up to the age of 85. So lifetime risk of developing breast cancer is around 60 to 70%, compared to around 12% in the general population. So that's a greatly elevated risk. Yes. For ovarian cancer, the risk in the general population is about 1%. And in the BRCA1 gene, the risk lifetime risk for developing ovarian cancer is about 45%. In the BRCA two population, it's about twenty percent. Hmm. So, so, so either way, raised to different extents, but both raised nonetheless.
1: So in many ways, although we think a lot about the breast cancer side of that gene carriage, the ovarian can you're more like the ovarian cancer risk in many ways is much higher. Uh, the, the, the because ovarian cancer is not seen as frequently in our community, the, the risk is much higher. Really, that you are going to get ovarian cancer. So the so relative the risk. Rel- yes. The relative risk. So when people come, uh, we had Angelina Jolie and she brought a lot of attention I think to all this and I know every time a celebrity develops breast cancer like Kylie Minogue you probably get undated with referrals but uh, when you develop, when you're assessed and you're found you're, you're to have BRCA1 or BRCA2, what, what what's your role there? What what do you then discuss with the patient and how, how do you guide them with that? Okay.
2: So I guess the first thing to say is is everybody has BRCA1 and BRCA2. So what we're looking for is a gene change within those genes. So if we find somebody that has a genetic change that we know is a cancer-causing change, and there are various genetic changes, uh, but if we know that it's a pathogenic cancer-causing gene change in either the BRCA1 or the BRCA2 gene, then we talk about ways to try and reduce that risk or to prevent cancer from forming. So with breast cancer, we have three ways that we can reduce that risk. The first is by screening more regularly. So we know that for women uh, in Australia over the age of 50, that they're invited to have breast screening every two years. For someone who has a BRCA1 or 2 genetic change, then we would suggest that they start breast screening from the age of 25 or 10 years younger than the youngest person in their family Mm. diagnosed. Mm. Um, And that might use modalities, including MRI, ultrasound and mammogram in conjunction with clinical examination. And they, we might say to do that every year with a clinical examination every six months. So it's increased screening in terms of frequency, but also uh, different modalities. Some women may prefer to have both breasts removed. So preventative surgeries or prophylactic um Bilateral mastectomies are a great way to reduce the risk of breast cancer and reduce the risk of breast cancer by ninety five percent. We can't reduce the risk of breast cancer to zero simply because we can't remove every single breast cell, because to do mm. that would require the removal of skin and muscle, and that's a very morbid procedure. So it's on not hundred percent, but it's getting close to a hundred percent reduction in in breast cancer.
1: Am I right to say also there's a much better cosmetic result if if you're having a if you're having breast removal? Pre cancer development, you have a very different kind of cosmetic result than, of course, than if you have a mastectomy and you've already got breast cancer. If it's a curative mastectomy, it's a very different outcome. So is that is that one of the I mean, one of the reasons is to have breast removal so you don't get cancer, but also there's an increased cosmetic benefit as well in some respects. Is and you that, have
2: greater options in terms of reconstruction.
1: Reconstruction, as well. yes, reconstruction. Yes. So, or so part part of this is also the the ovarian side of this equation. What what's what's your advice in regard to of ovarian cancer developing.
2: So I'll just say the other the other thing with breast cancer is that we do have medications that reduce breast cancer risk as well and so that's another option particularly in the young woman who's not ready to have their breasts surgically removed they may opt for screening plus medication to help reduce their breast cancer risk. Which
1: medication is that Lucy? What are you recommending? So
2: we have uh medications such as tamoxifen or um, anastrozole uh, in the postmenopausal women and it's taken for a period of five years and it can reduce the risk by almost 30 to 50 percent. Mm. So it can be very useful but obviously all of of these medications have side effects too so tamoxifen has quite a, a difficult side effect profile that a lot of people don't like to accept either so it's really about having a balanced discussion in terms of the options for the woman when she's been diagnosed with a genetic change
1: okay cuz a, a lot of the i'm not sure what the percentage is but uh, the first episode we talked about the triple negative with BRCA1 and but just which would not be amenable to estrogen blockers but but you're still giving it in this case as a chemo preventative medication
2: correct so it, it, it is more in prevention of the hormone receptor-positive cancers, uh, but they make up a a proportion of those that develop um, cancer in in BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers.
1: Okay, all right.
2: So from the ovarian cancer perspective, which was your question, um, we know that there's no screening modalities. So there's no blood test that helps us detect ovarian cancer early and there's no uh, imaging that helps us to detect ovarian cancer early. So the only way that we can prevent ovarian cancer is to actually remove the organ which is the ovaries and the fallopian tubes because we know a proportion of ovarian cancers actually originate from the fallopian tubes Mm. and this is a life-saving procedure so having your ovaries out is life-saving because it prevents ovarian cancer.
1: Is there an age when that's normally recommended? Uh, uh, Let's assume uh, a woman's sort of in in their 20s and they're they're diagnosed they haven't yet had a family. Do you you kind of give them a nudge and say look why don't you you know hurry up get your family out of the way and you know well, is there an age where you kind of like to recommend? Uh, yeah, so depending on the
2: gene, we may recommend uh, having your ovaries removed anywhere from the age of forty, forty-five, or fifty, depending on the particular right. gene that's involved, and that's to try and balance the risk and when the average age of onset is seen in those mutation carriers of um, of cancer, right. but also the risk from premature menopause.
1: And the bracket one being greater risk than the bracket two. So when you saying correct, yes, okay, all right. Uh, and, and is there a risk, it, just going back to the breast side of the equation, um, a contralateral malignancy, if you have a malignancy in one breast and then you're found to have the BRCA gene, it, it, there's what's the risk of the contralateral, do you know what the risk percentages are of contralateral breast? Um, so
2: the development of a new primary yes. breast cancer is impacted by not only a genetic status but the age that you were diagnosed with the original breast cancer. So there is, um, there is a variable outcome there. And again, we can use the same chemo prevention such as tamoxifen um, to reduce the risk of developing new primaries. So mm-hmm. for someone who gets who is a BRCA mutation, and is diagnosed with a breast cancer that's hormone receptor positive, and they do not wish to have a prophylactic mastectomy on the unaffected side, then in fact their treatment of the tamoxifen or the anastrozole that they may be getting will be protective to a degree.
1: Thank you very much for cleaning that one up. What about prostate carcinoma and BRCA two? I understand there's there's a male risk for BRCA two in terms of breast cancer, though it's still very low risk. And prostate cancer is slightly greater risk. Do you have referrals uh, in relation to BRCA two and from the from the male perspective? Is that something you come across very frequently?
2: We're seeing more and more men with prostate cancer being sent to us for genetic testing. And this is not really driven by understanding whether it's an inherited condition and whether there's risk for other family members. This is more driven by the access to therapies. So we know patients that have a RACA2 genetic mutation uh, respond really well to a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors. And so this extends not only for ovarian cancer, which is when they were first proven, but also into men with uh, prostate cancer and to people with pancreatic cancer as well. So we're seeing a lot more referrals of those two groups, prostate and pancreatic cancer, purely driven by
1: our therapy choices. Right, that's very that's sort of the personalised medicine arm of, of treatment yeah. coming in. Um, t- no. th- thank you for covering that. Uh, that subject. What about Lynch syndrome? Can you tell us a little bit about the Lynch gene? So, um, you know, we, we've, we've just done with BRCA and I understand the frequency of that BRCA inheritance is about 1 in 400, 0.25% of women, and and Ashkenazi germ, in which case it's 1 in 40. Uh, but in terms of Lynch, I understand that's more like 1 in 300. It's actually more frequently seen, but perhaps not quite so commonly known or understood or talked about. But can you tell us a little bit about Lynch syndrome, what we should know about that?
2: So, And I think we alluded to this before. So whilst it might be more frequent in the population, the reason that we don't know about it as much is because the risk for cancer is lower. So we know that there are five genes that are associated with Lynch syndrome, and these are part of the family known as the mismatch repair genes, and they help to repair DNA. So when they're lost, we don't repair the DNA, and the DNA can form into cancer cells. So these are associated predominantly with two types of cancer, which is bowel cancer and endometrial cancer. But the percentages are not as high as what we discussed with breast and ovarian. So for the bowel cancer risk, it's about 35% lifetime risk with Lynch syndrome. And for endometrial cancer, it's about a 30% lifetime risk. So that penetrance Mm. is a lot lower. That chance of developing cancer with Lynch syndrome is a lot lower than, say, with BRCA1. And within Lynch syndrome, within the five genes, each of the genes confers a different risk. Mm. So there are some Mm. genes that have a higher risk. And there are other genes that are quite low risk, such as the PMS2 gene, which yes. is actually the lowest risk gene within the Lynch
1: syndrome. Yes. Okay. So, what 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 other sorts of if you're seeing a patient who's got who's been tested positive for Lynch, do you, and maybe we've lost him for the minute, but we, do you both talk also about the other up to twelve cancers or so that can be associated with Lynch? Do you talk a little bit about stomach cancer, about screening for uh, bladder cancer and and so forth, renal cancers? Where, where does that discussion go when they're when they're with you? having a chat about these relative risks.
2: So when when we've diagnosed someone with Lynch syndrome, we talk to them mainly with predominantly about those two main cancers, so the colon cancer risk and the endometri- uh, the endometrial and we lump that with the ovarian cancer risk as well because the preventative surgery is to remove a total abdominal yes. hysterectomy. We do mention the other cancers, and there are a number of other cancers that are associated with Lynch syndrome, but they're associated at a much lower degree, and they don't have good screening protocols. So we don't mm. have good screening for stomach cancer, kidney mm. cancer, bladder cancer, brain cancer, biliary cancer, which some of the cancers associated with Lynch syndrome. And they, often, they happen to a much lower degree as well. So they're mm. a lot less likely to happen even in the Lynch syndrome population. So whilst we mention them, we don't burden them with all of that information as well.
1: Yes, okay. I often, when I see patients who have got the Lynch, I think, oh, should I be doing uh, some abdominal imaging, CT imaging? Of course, that's an exposure of radiation and probably the risk of, the, the probability of picking up something in the kidneys or elsewhere is very low. But do, do you have a, a, a feeling about that? I guess at the moment, there really isn't any protocol to be doing that. So,
2: so there's no evidence at this stage that that's helpful uh, in Lynch syndrome patients. And I think... You know, there, there may come a time when when these protocols do get updated and changed, but right as we stand currently, there's no... The, the risk is greater than the benefit for undertaking those investigations, and so we don't recommend them as screening modalities.
0: But, Lucy,
1: is there any way in which we can influence the biology through our lifestyle? Is it, 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 it's. It, are there any, Do you have any comments about that? If someone says, well, I've got this gene, what else can I do I, I, to, to prevent the cancer from developing and the... Um, all the consequences of that phenotype do you have any comments there so
2: we know that in general in terms of cancer development that lifestyle modification is important so that is eating well exercising not smoking moderate alcohol reducing stress um, mindfulness and all of these things can play a part and often the development of cancer is not due to one thing so someone doesn't develop cancer simply because they have an inherited gene change. They develop cancer for a number of different reasons. Their risk is greater if they have an inherited gene change, but that doesn't mean that they're going to develop cancer in most settings. And so these other things do have a part to play. But again, in terms of reducing their risk for cancer, they'll probably reduce it to a degree, but probably not to the extent that some of the other things we talk about are. So it's something to be mindful of and and to talk with patients about hand in hand, but for understanding that there is a role for these other recommendations such as, Increase colonoscopic surveillance or taking chemo prevention
1: medication. Thank you. Lucy, do you, we've talked about the breast and ovarian cancer, we've talked about Lynch and uh, you know colorectal cancer. Are uh, uh, patients referred to you for other less commonly considered um, cancer screening, retinoblastoma and so forth, do you have many other referrals? Would you say the breast, ovarian and bowel is sort of like 95% of your work? By,
2: by far and away, Breast ovarian and bowel cancer syndromes are the greatest proportion of patients that we see. A lot of the other cancer um, predisposition syndromes, such as retinoblastoma, they're they're diagnosed in childhood. We don't see children at Cabrini. Mm. They would be managed through the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, So they are often already known to be a carrier or affected and so don't need genetic testing. So we don't coordinate ongoing screening or surveillance through the clinic. Our purpose is to inform patients of their cancer risk, to facilitate genetic testing and to counsel them based on those results whether it's positive or negative and then they can take that information back to their GP or their specialist to facilitate ongoing care.
0: Yes
1: well Lucy that's really helpful I'm very grateful that you've run through those two very important syndromes thank you so much for making the time to uh, join me on Everyday Medicine and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again soon thank you very much. Thanks Luke. Thank Thank you.
0: I'd like to thank you for joining me in the conversation today with Lucy Gates, who did an incredible job in making this complex subject uh, quite uh, accessible. I really do appreciate her spending time in joining me today from the Cabrini Family Cancer Clinic. Uh, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many special interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.